Welcome to Life on Less Meds, a podcast that reveals the truth about drug side effects and the best strategies to manage them. And now your host, Dr. Yosef Wittering. Hi, I'm Dr. Yosef Wittering, and I've got David Healy um, uh, back with us today. Um, and um, I thought it would be really fun to catch up and kind of talk about some of the forces in healthcare that lead to, I guess, poor medical care. And um, David has talked a lot about, I guess, guidelines and the different, you know, guideline development and the different things that go on behind the scenes that influence how physicians prescribe me- medications. And um, uh, I think we can just we can just dive in straight into it. So I'm going to, you know, ask ask you, uh, David, um, what's your assessment of, I guess, um, the the primary forces that are that are kind of influencing. Uh, how, I guess, psychiatry has kind of gotten pretty bad is, is what I'm going to say, you know, with the with the overprescribing, you know, the misdiagnosis and such. So I'd love to just get your overall download on that, very broad. Okay. Let me um, begin by saying there, I mean, I really wish I didn't ever end up having to say this, which is there are actually... Uh, uh, advantages to being old okay and i'm old enough to have well to be able to remember the scene during uh the 1980s where there was a bunch of articles around the place which as a young person i'm looking at the major journals and seeing that people are actually getting together in what they're calling at the time consensus conferences now it becomes fairly clear after a while that at the consensus conferences may have begun with people from different points of view all there trying to work out what kind of things they should they could do and this is not just mental health this is a cross medicine okay but also becomes clear that they change and they become a consensus conferences where you've got a group of experts who all think the same way to begin with and they're coming to a point of view and often these articles will be ghost written for them none of the experts there trying to work out how we should treat people uh, are actually doing the writing of the article okay but uh, the other thing that also becomes clear is that people are beginning to think during the 80s we've got loads of evidence around the place and you know we've got evidence that points to things that work and then we've got a bunch of things we're all doing that there's no real evidence for and the thing that sort of comes back to me was people began talking about stripping varicose veins there's no evidence for that, and maybe we really shouldn't be doing it, okay? So it was all about not saying, not trying to tell people what they should do, because that really wasn't on the radar during the 1980s. It was more about telling people, well, there are things we're doing that which maybe we oughtn't to be doing, okay? Now, this led on to guidelines. And when I say guidelines, what we have today is we've got bodies like uh, uh, in the UK, there's a group called the National Institute for Healthcare and Clinical Excellence, NICE, and they produce guidelines. And in the UK, at least, uh, and I'm sure it's a bit the same in the States, there's really only one or two groups that people pay any heed to. They're authoritative, okay? Back in the late 1980s, early 1990s, it was uh, at the Wild West, okay? There were tons of guidelines being produced, which nobody's ever heard of since, okay? Uh, and I was involved in a few of them. I was involved in um, uh, the guidelines for uh, the British uh, uh, Association for uh, uh, 
psychopharmacology, the BAP. Now, that's a little bit like the ACNP in the the mm -hmm. United States. And in the UK, at least, people will have heard about it. Uh, so um, I was also involved in some some company guidelines. And the one thing that I recall most clearly was I was involved in drawing up some guidelines for Rispital when it came on the market first. Oh. And what you got was Janssen convened a bunch of people. And none of them were particularly linked to the pharmaceutical industry. None of them were experts on drugs like Rispital. They were being asked to produce guidelines, uh, you know, about uh, whether it was a good idea to use Rispital, whether it would save money for the National Health Service. Rispital cost maybe $1,000 a year at the time, maybe $2,000. And drugs like Clozabin, which had just mm -hmm. come out uh, around that time, were were actually costing eight, nine, ten thousand $10,000 per year, which isn't huge now, but was enormous then because drugs like haloperidol and chlorpromazine cost $100 a year, mm -hmm. okay? And, you know, the guideline um, process that Janssen uh, had me involved in, okay, uh, you know, was one where we were told, you know, the fact that this is being kind of sponsored by, by, by um, actually sponsored by Janssen is nothing to do with this. You guys have just been given, you know, the scientific literature. Here's the articles that are out there. Uh, and you have been asked to look at these and come to a view about, you know, what would, in terms of what the scientific literature says, how well these drugs work, and then given their cost, and if the drugs work well, for instance, uh, and keep you out of hospital, well, hospital costs a huge amount of money. So you need to bring that into the frame too, okay? So, but it was hands off. We weren't being told what to conclude or what to do. And all these people who had nothing to do with the pharmaceutical industry, these guys who didn't actually prescribe drugs much ever, you know, they had all of the articles as had I. And uh, when you put them together, you know, Lo and behold, out of this this process, there was a mystery, which was Rispital, which cost one or two thousand dollars per year, was cheaper. It was going to save money than Chlorpromazine, which only cost a mm -hmm. hundred dollars a year. Okay, and uh, this really got my interest in the whole thing. And it was what what became clear to me was that uh, if you control uh, at the scientific literature you control what the guidelines going to say mm -hmm. that, i mean if even if you you know if you give these articles to people who hate industry if you give people uh, you know the articles to people who say no one should ever have drugs and say well that's fine guys just go with the science tell us how the numbers add up everybody's going to conclude that well actually you know it's funny but respirals cheaper than chlorpromazine or you know overall when you take uh, everything uh, actually into account now the point behind mentioning all this was fairly soon afterwards, the coin dropped for uh, the pharmaceutical companies also. And they had all been in the business of kind of uh, getting involved in trying to convene meetings like this to produce guidelines for Risperdal and Chlorpromazine, well, not Chlorpromazine, Risperdal and Aquatiapin and Clozapin and all the new uh, 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 antipsychotics and the SSRIs and heart drugs and respiratory drugs and this, that and the other. And they realized all of a sudden, we don't need to do this. Uh, we we control the scientific literature. You could have a totally independent body like the 
nice guidelines when they got created in 1997, I think. Okay. And uh, we've got these totally independent groups set up by the Socialist Party in the the UK who are all about trying to contain costs and everything like that. And we'll let them just do the guidelines and we know how it's going to turn out. They don't, but we know how it's going to turn out because, you know, the process is that you base the guidelines on the controlled trials. You don't base the guidelines on on anything else, like your hunch or your bias or whatever, okay? And the the, the key point, I mean, I guess one of the key points that influences you know, the guidelines here in Europe and in uh, uh, at the States also is that in 1991, there was a key moment, and I'm sure I've mentioned this ad nauseum to you and other people, mm-hmm. which is there was the crisis about Prozac causing people uh, to become suicidal. Now, the articles that came out around then were really good articles, which proved that for some people, Prozac can make them uh, become actively suicidal. You halt the drug, the problem clears up. You reintroduce the drug, the problem comes back. There's really no way to argue about it. You know, this drug can, which can be awfully good for some people, can be a real problem for others, okay? Um, And in response to that, Lily came out with their, their... article saying, well, we've meta-analyzed our control trials of Prozac. And you've got all these case reports, these anecdotes about uh, the drug causing problems. Well, the plural of anecdotes, not data, they said. Uh, Interestingly, though, the original phrase is the plural of anecdote is data. And Mm -hmm. Google wouldn't work if that weren't the case. Okay. The other thing they said, well, if people are becoming suicidal, it can't be Prozac. Look, let's face it it's got to be the illness causing it. And that sounds very plausible to people, unless you know that when they gave Prozac to healthy volunteers and gave other SSRIs to healthy volunteers, that they became suicidal too. At that point, the industry have to roll out experts to say, oh, well, they must have been ill, these people that became suicidal, these healthy Mm -hmm. volunteers. And you can believe that if you want, but uh, I'm inclined to figure it's uh, the drug causing the problem. And the third thing they said was RCTs, are the science of cause and effect. If the RCT doesn't show it, then whatever else you have, however plausible it looks, it's just not real. Now, from um, a scientific point of view, uh, the the issue is there's no such thing as one way to produce the truth. If I've got case reports about people uh, which which look awfully convincing, which are about people that I've seen, you know, that have actually become suicidal, a problem clears up. Uh, Mm -hmm. And if we, I mean, and I've asked pharmaceutical company people and people who are hostile to drugs and all sorts of people to come in. I've asked my clinical colleagues, we've done case conferences and said, look, guys, you've seen this case, you've had a chance to interview the people. What's the consensus view about what's going on here? And uh, the consensus view is, well, it looks like the drug has caused the problem. Now, that's not saying we know for sure, okay? But if we then have RCTs showing that the drug can't cause the problem, it's a very interesting issue from the point of view of science, which ought to be all about trying to reconcile things. You know, and the scientific mission is, you know, not to throw up your hands, but to say, okay, we've got two different bodies of facts here. We've got white swans and a black swan. You know, what's going on? How do we reconcile these things? Uh, 
But the Lily response was, no, 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 we're not in the business of trying to reconcile anything. Ours is the truth. Yours isn't. And this it's is very inconvenient. This yeah. is religious. It's not scientific. For, I mean, from my point of view, if the control trials don't show the problem, it's an interesting issue. And, uh, you know, there could be all sorts of things. It could be they've, you know, they had elderly people in uh, the trials that I'm seeing young people or it could be males and I'm seeing females or whatever. As it turns out, the reason the control trials didn't show the problem is they were ghostwritten and the data was hidden. If you get access to the raw data for Lily's trials, you see the problem is there and it's statistically significantly there. So there's no conflict between what I was seeing in the clinic and what the control trials show. But, but let, well, well, let me let me stop to, you there. Oh, well, I mean, finish on, your point I'm, and then let me just jump finish. In. Yeah, no, of yeah. course, of course. And the yeah. point behind this is, you see, nice guidelines and all the other guidelines base what they're saying on the control trials. Mm -hmm. And the control trials say these drugs only do good and don't cause problems. And if you look at the guidelines, they're all about the benefits. They do not talk about the hazards. So we're being told, I mean, the people who manage health services look at you and me, uh, and they look at you know, the guidelines, and they see the guidelines say, give these drugs, they can only work. And you and I know when we're treating people that they can cause problems and we may not give them. And the management aren't inclined to let us go off on what they view as our, our own idiosyncratic way. We should be doing what the guidelines say, what the standards of care say, as they're called more often over in the, the United States, but not in the UK. They're just called guidelines. Mm -hmm. So a couple things, um, I mean, there's so many threads to pull on there. I think, I mean, the first one that I wanted to, to, to talk about is just the, um, I guess the, the kind of the, the, the background effect where you have really well-funded groups who can ge actually generate the evidence. So, so doctors get the, I guess the so-called, you know, evidence of what's useful in schizophrenia or what's useful in depression you know they're going to get that from the the research and you know and and then you have to place it in the context of this various interventions different psycho you know psychotherapeutic interventions and counseling and all of these types of things and then medications is just one of those but you know the way uh you know commerce works and the, you know the the economy works is you know the groups that want to sell the medications i mean they have a war chest of resources. So, so this, there's this one effect there where if you go, you know, I don't know, PubMed or something like that, you, you know, best way to treat depression. I mean, you're, you're probably going to get flooded with um, trials that are looking at um, the effect of antidepressants. You know, um, they're going to be the longest, they're going to be the most rigorous, they're going to be the ones that have had, you know, they may be randomized controlled trials and they probably cost you know, tens to, to hundreds of millions of dollars to execute. And it gives this impression, I think, to the medical profession that, you know, this is, this is, this is the stuff that's evidence-based, you know, you know, the, the, these other counselors or allied health professionals who are doing this other stuff, you know, they're just kind of, you know, they're, they're, they're just talking, um, you know, they, they, they could be making, they could be making things up, but it, but it's that cumulative effect of, um, 
of of who can generate the data and and that and that just has this influence that just skews things i mean so that that was the that's 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 the first thing that comes to mind when i when i think about you know what you're talking about but the the next thing is um something which is also interesting it's uh who has the microphone and 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 oftentimes it's the drug company who was you know sponsoring the you know this consensus paper or maybe this uh you know this interpretation of study data from prozac and they've been able to choose all of the investigators who are going to be on the authorship line and they get to choose the um the and and they get to choose the the way it's interpreted and it and it re- it reminded me of something that I saw in residency a lot and I think a lot of people have seen this can you see my screen at the moment you see the pyramid yeah. yeah yeah so this is um this is this is the hierarchy of evidence you know and I don't know exactly where this came from it, it probably came from yeah yeah where did where did this where did this come from david yeah where this this, this actually goes back to the, yeah. the the cochrane group and they they form in 1992 mm-hmm. uh, and they sell this line that uh, control trials are you know the key thing and meta analyzing control trials is really uh the way forward and this is what cochrane are all about now they get formed mm-hmm. a year after lily produce the paper which does just this and part of the reason that this paper was so influential was that they sent it to uh, the bmj which is a journal whose editor at the time was closely linked to the people who formed cochrane and he bought into this idea well what we have here is a company doing evidence-based medicine as it was beginning to be called which is you know they're meta-analyzing control trials Nothing can go wrong. You know, what we've got is this idea that control trials are impervious to bias. And, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, if you do a control trial, whether it's done by the government, whether it's done by independent people, or whether it's done by industry, it's going to produce a pure answer. You know, uh, this is is like looking at generating the evidence in uh, a lab where everything's sterilized. The numbers on the control trials don't smell. Nobody thinks that it can go wrong, even if it's industry funded. But of course, there was a key point in all that, which is the the episode where children became suicidal on 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 antidepressants. The nice guidelines in the UK and Cochrane at the time were looking at the evidence from control trials in children who'd uh, had become depressed and were being treated with with. SSRIs. And this was at 2004, when the crisis blew up about kids uh, actually becoming suicidal, that led to a black box warning on these drugs. And it became clear at that point, that in the case of every single published trial, what was claimed in the article was at odds was just the opposite to what we then found out the actual data showed. And it also became clear, although it was not clearly said, was that the articles where these claims were made that the drugs work well and were safe were all ghostwritten. And this, I think, what I keep saying, and no one argues really, is that this is the greatest divide in all of medicine between what the published scientific so-called literature says and what the raw data says when we actually get to see it. And this very interesting editorial in, uh, 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 in the Lancet journal uh, around that time, which is just called De 
depressing research where the people who are involved in trying to make the guidelines for kids said, look, you know, we just can't do it. It's clear without the data, you just can't do it. Uh, and it looks like you know, uh, 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 the data points to a, a real problem and we shouldn't be using these drugs. And the implication almost of it was, and this probably holds true across all of medicine, that we're facing a situation where we don't have the data on all the guidelines that we make for you know, the nice guidelines, or we don't actually have the data. And if we don't have the data, we shouldn't be making guidelines. But my hunch is, I mean, this is an opportunity for, for Cochrane and Nice to say, we will only base our gu guidelines on controlled trials where we have the data. And this would have removed 90% of the trials that were being done, which are all being done by you know, the pharmaceutical companies, but they thought better of it. They were persuaded not to do this. So this was a real moment where, where Cochrane and NICE and everybody else who makes guidelines failed. Um, you know, they really should have said, well, look, we're in a very strong position. We can get the pharmaceutical companies to do things properly by simply refusing to include their trials in the guidelines we make. But um, uh, when it came to this contest, uh, the pharmaceutical industry won uh, and science lost. Yeah, um, that I mean, that's a whole nother point, which which we're going to we should dive right into is is uh, the I guess how. I guess how poorly the trials can be analyzed. Um, and I guess we, we'll talk about, I think it was a study 329, the, the, the Paxil study. We can talk about that in a moment. I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to close up with a final thought about this pyramid, which I think is, is, is kind of interesting. Um, so, you know, back in the early nineties, you have David down here. He's the kind of the green base of the pyramid saying, you know, I'm I'm seeing people who are becoming suicidal on Prozac, mm -hmm. and then you have the randomized control trial, and they're essentially, and uh, and for the audience that that may not know what that is. So, when we're talking about this, we're usually thinking about a double blind study. So you have two arms, you know, let's say a thousand people in each arm, and I'm pulling these numbers out of nowhere, and um one group is get, given Prozac for two months and the other group is given placebo. And, you know, when you're looking at whether it's causing a suicide or not, you might choose something like, you know, suicide's pretty worse. So, so we're going to look at suicidal behavior and let's see if the number of people who have suicidal behavior is higher in one group than, than the other. But the studies, they're not, they're not really designed to detect the difference between a drug-induced suicidal behavior or say, for instance, you know, it's just something that's the background rate. And I guess the way I always thought about this problem and then why I think it was missed for like a, something like, I don't know, 16 or 17 years since people started talking about it was you have this interesting cancel out effect. So, you know, and these, these numbers aren't epidemiologically based, but just for the purpose of an example. So you have a thousand people on placebo and a hundred of them have some kind of suicidal behavior. Let's just say that's the normal background rate of what, what happens. It may be possible, you know, on the active arm, you know, on the group exposed to fluoxetine, uh, sorry, Prozac to end up with the exact same figures, you know, a hundred suicide attempts or suicidal behavior 
Um, and then it looks like there's no difference, but you, you kind of have these differing forces on that active arm. You know, you may have, let's say, five people who were prevented from having a suicidal, you know, some kind of suicidal behavior because of the beneficial effect of the drug. You know, the emotional constriction that it caused was therapeutic to them and they're fine. But at the same time, there were five people in there who may have been induced to have some kind of suicidal behavior because for reasons we don't understand, they're just especially sensitive to that kind of drug and they have it. You know, when, when the numbers work out, you kind of have this, okay, minus five, we saved five, but then we caused it in five people. When in aggregate, that's still a hundred. And, you know, someone could look at it and just say, no difference. You know, look, there's no difference between the arms, but what was completely missed was I, I think the, you know, the, and this is just this is like an interpretation problem, you know. They 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 weren't taking into account the differential effects of the drug, and it was just convenient to say, you know, there's no statistical difference. Difference. This is this is nothing to see here. Where, you know, it's just strange. You know, you would expect an right. antidepressant to cause less suicides in in the group that was getting the mm -hmm. drug, but that's never been the case. In fact, I think it's always been slightly more. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. But but they just dominated the narrative by saying, you know. There's no difference in the randomized controlled trials. You know, let's ignore, you know, all of these other interpretation problems. And we'll just keep on saying that expert opinions and these case series where, you know, David, you're publishing case series on people becoming suicidal and antidepressants. We'll just say this is a lesser form of evidence. You know, don't ask too many questions. You know, and, mm -hmm. and that just is what it is. So I think that's um, that was. I think that was uh, something that really kind of stuck out to me about about that. Um, Let me yeah. jump in there and add to it, yeah. okay? I mean, there's two angles to it. We're in a kind of situation now where doctors have been told, and if you're involved in the clinical trial as well, this is what happens. I mean, if you're actually one of the investigators, you're told, you don't think. You let the trial and uh, the statistics do the thinking for you. Right. And if, as you say, the numbers look you're the same in both groups, well, that's it. The numbers are the same in both groups. You know, you can't say the drug has done this, that, or the other. Uh, and it's a bit like even just down using uh, the rating scales we use in, in clinical trials. If you're using the Hamilton uh, depression rating scale and on uh, the suicide item, and the person says in the last week, yeah, I've tried to kill myself, well, that's, you know, if it's the illness causing it, you should rated as a four on that item. If it's a drug causing it, you should rate it maybe as a zero. But in a clinical trial, you're not asked to think, you're not asked to ask extra questions to find out what's really going on. You just rate a four. So it becomes the illness is actually causing it. Now, this leads to one other point, which is controlled trials produce an average effect, right? And Austin Bradford Hill was the man who did the first RCT, so you'd have thought he'd be awfully enthusiastic about his creation. And Louis Lasagne was the biggest advocate for RCTs in the United States in uh, the early 60s. And he incorporated them into the Food and Drugs Act, which means companies now have to do controlled trials to get their drug mm -hmm. on the market. And you'd have thought <laughs> he'd be enthusiastic about them too. But both of them, you know, uh, sh shortly after they did their first RCTs said, look, RCTs don't show you, can't show you the adverse effects that a drug causes. And the other thing they don't do and can't tell you is how to treat the patient right in front of you. They've given you an average effect for this drug, but 
the patient right in front of you is likely not average. You know, they're going to be, as you pointed, they may be down at one end of you know, the scale, they may respond beautifully to the drug, or at the opposite end, they may respond horribly. You know, at the average effect may not apply to them at all. Uh, so you really got to work it out. And the only way you can work it out is talking to the patient in a clinical interview and coming to a consensus view between you and them as to what's likely to work. And you send them home with some pills which you hope are going to work, but you've also told them these may not work. Forget the guidelines which only say these things work. You know, you and I know we're really taking a risk here. It could work, but it may not. And if there's a hint of anything going wrong, you need to get in touch with me, or even if you can't get in touch with me, maybe think about holding the pill. Yeah, David, I want to ask you on that. I mean, you, I mean, like you said, you've been around for a while and, and um, I guess you've seen things. I know you've been an expert witness on, I don't, I don't even know how many cases when things have gone terribly wrong. Um, what, 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 is, what has happened, you know, um, I guess over time where that, that, is, that just doesn't happen anymore, where you get, you know, patients that are clearly doing poorly on the drug and instead of that being picked up by physicians and saying, you know, I'm, you know, probably best to ease off this. But in fact, they, they go the other way. They step on the gas and they, they add more medications and then they completely miss it. I, I'd, love, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. You know, what, how has this, I guess, all that this evidence generation and these problems in the research led to that situation? Um, yeah, yeah. There's a few quick answers. I mean, uh, yeah, the first thing that came to mind when you were uh, uh, asking the question was this man I had who had schizophrenia. I mean, there was no argument about it, okay? Uh, and he had some weird ideas. Uh, but he got put on uh, an antipsychotic and he became worse and began to figure that there was something wrong with his legs, began to scratch them and big sores opened up and they got infected. And, uh, you know, the response from most of the people treating him was, we've got to increase the dose. He's clearly crazy, you know, and we, we have to increase the dose of these pills, which made the problem worse. And he ended up with these legs, which were just stripped bare and pussy and oozing and things like that. No one could, could accept the idea that the trials which have shown what they claimed was these antipsychotics work show that a third of people given antipsychotics don't do well in them. I mean, one third do well, one third it's a bit in the middle and one third do poorly, uh, you know, and this man was part of the one third that did poorly, but those trials lead to um, a clear statement. These drugs work. I mean, it isn't a statement. These drugs work for some people. It's a statement that these drugs work. And part of the problem, this comes down to regulation a bit, and you can see it for antihypertensives and you can see it for um, drugs for, for diabetes and, what's best of all i mean you can see it for uh, the antidepressants the antipsychotics and all but what's really beautiful is you can see it for laxatives too there's fda approve a drug as an antidepressant our laxative our antihypertensive okay and doctors have lost something they 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 um figure it's an antihypertensive show so it should work but you know, we've got at least four different groups of antihypertensives. We've got you know, the thiazides, we've got the calcium channel blockers, which do completely different things. We've got the drugs that act on the ACE system, and we've got beta blockers. These are all totally different drugs, okay? 
And this came home to me um, some years ago when I saw this lady who uh, had come to me on a bunch of different drugs, one of which had caused her to become psychotic. One of the antihypertensives had caused her to become psychotic, and she'd gone into hospital and they labeled her as having schizophrenia. Now, she was much too old to have kind of schizophrenia. This is her first episode in her mid-50s that I looked back at the drug record. She was on four antihypertensives. And she'd begun with terribly mildly raised blood pressure. So the doctor put her on an antihypertensive, okay? Didn't work. Put her on one more, added in a third, no change to, you know, the blood pressure. But the guidelines say, you know, if it's this high, you've got to get it down, okay? So uh, the doctor puts her on a fourth, which works, okay? And, you know, uh, at the blood pressure comes down. But all of these drugs are antihypertensive, so the doctor leaves her on all four drugs rather than thinking, uh, well, they're not all antihypertensive. They work in four different ways, and it's the fourth one that has worked for her, and I can drop the first three. You know, and, uh, and the first three are maybe just making things worse. So instead of being a mild case of hypertension, she becomes treatment-resistant hypertension. And that happens with the antidepressants and the antipsychotics and laxatives too. There's four different kinds of laxatives. And the clinical skill is knowing what the patient right in front of you needs, which may be to get a laxative, but they're not all the same. You've got to have an extra bit of clinical skill, which is working out what's the likely kind of problem they have, which means I'll give an, uh, you know, a drug which um, uh, increases fiber or increases gut motility or whatever rather than just throwing in drugs because they're called laxative. And that's the problem. We're, we're being governed by the words. This drug is a laxative, so it should work. Uh, rather than having you know, the clinical skill to think, well, what do I want the drug to do to get the person well? And only do that. And if that doesn't work, we'll think, well, clearly I got that wrong. What else? What would be the next option? Rather than adding pills together, take away the first one, try a completely different therapeutic principle. What, what, we've, what we've got a little bit is the word antidepressant suggests magic bullet that it's going to work. And particularly when you add in depressions caused by lowered serotonin, okay? Mm -hmm. uh, the drug gets this up. But there's four different kinds of antidepressants. You know, there's the SSRIs, which are anxiolytic, the norepinephrine reuptake inhibitors, which are more energy-enhancing, vigilance-enhancing, the TCAs, which, you know, treat melancholia, and then the other drugs, which increase appetite and sleep and things like that. You know, we need to, as opposed to just thinking they're all the same. I mean, clinical trials, because they produce numbers, average numbers, make them all look the same, but they're not. They're completely different, you know. And this is what evidence-based medicine misses, you know, which is we've got drugs, which their, their biology counts, what it is they're actually doing counts. Um, and, uh, you know, this is this is the thing which I think leads to, you know, people figuring they've been shown to work. Uh, we just keep adding them in until something works. Uh, but, yeah. I mean, a, a few things that come to mind is, I mean, one, my own reflections of being a resident recently in the U.S., because... Uh, I mean, I went through that program. I don't know what training was like and whether those ideas which you just described were commonplace for you know, physician training back then, but I definitely didn't hear anything about, you know, hey, at the end of the day, 
you want to be really careful. And even though this says that it has this average treatment effect in this population of such and such that, you know, things could go, you know, the wrong way. Um, I, I learned to fairly what I guess what I would call kind of this, this, this kind of cookbook form of medicine, you know, where it's like, what, what condition do they have in the DSM? Okay. Now they've got this one. Let's go find, you know, a guideline or, you know, we should do this. And, and, and just like that, we'll, we'll put them on it. And so, I mean, I definitely remember that. And then the other thing um, which came to mind is this idea of like, imagine this kind of this, this blank deserted street, it's in the dark. And then you just have this street light and it just it illuminates this one circle there. And, and that reminds me of, a, a, you know, clinical trial evidence generation where you've got all of these targeted scales aimed at assessing the benefit of the drug, you know, the efficacy mm-hmm. and then safety is just kind of, you know, things that kind of just bubble up through the investigators if they're lucky enough to pick up on them. And mm-hmm. um, so, you know, this case where you've had this person with schizophrenia who's having all of these leg problems, um, instead of someone saying, oh, you know, well, let me go down to, you know, let me look at the drug label. And yes, you know, this is actually a recognized side effect of the drug. Um, you know, in, in a drug label, that might be one line there you know like one or one word in one section you know the the clinical description of that it's akathisia or it's Mm -hmm. um some kind of sensory neuropathy has occurred you know there's no kind of spelled out description of you know we have observed this you know patients may be itching their legs they may be moving side to side you know we've had this i mean none of that kind of gets conveyed into the drug Mm -hmm. label and it's just all focused on efficacy Mm -hmm. and so it becomes so skewed where things, you know, because there's not this big investment in describing these risks of the drugs, people, they go, oh, you know, it's just, I mean, he's crazy. You know, why is he scratching his legs? Why? Yeah, is he, yeah. you know, I mean, of course, uh-huh. he, this, this guy's, in, you know, he's got schizophrenia. Mm-hmm. We'll just lump it on. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah. Let me ask you yeah. a question. Let me ask you a question. Um, you hinted at your training and one of the things from conversations we've had that, People need to know they're not conversations over beer. They're just over coffee and things like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you've talked about you know, the kind of training and how those immense pressure on you not to talk about hazards, not to deviate from the script, et cetera, et cetera. Your mentors would get in touch and tell you, well, you may not be fit to work here if you're too Bolshevik or whatever. Mm-hmm. I don't um, talk more about that. Was, that was hugely interesting. I mean, yeah, I mean, it's (laughs) talking about that's kind of, I think it's, I mean, it's, it's just been so representative of uh, not, not just my training, but just kind of globally. And I, you know, cause I, I, I've worked in a lot of corporate settings since then. I think, you know, we've talked about it, you know, I work in a couple kind of worked in three different pharmaceutical companies now. And um, it's, it's, it's all been fairly, fairly similar. And I think a lot of people can, can relate to it. I mean, once once you're in a, a corporate setting, and I'd say medicine can become a, a pretty corporate setting quickly. Quickly, if if you know if you if you're low man on the totem pole, your job is to to make your attending's life easy. You know, you don't want to be you know questioning, you know, poor medical decisions that are maybe making people worse um, or um, um, you know harming people. It's, I mean, that that's not going to be very popular. Uh, to to do that and 
yeah, it, it's very kind of conflicting, you know, when you, you know, I, I went into, and I don't think I've told you this, David, but I've spoken about before. I mean, I went into medicine from a very, uh, I guess, uh, an interest in, in, in psychotherapy an interest in talk therapy, you know, self-help, things like that. That was, that was my framework in choosing psychiatry. And then, so then I come to the U S and I see that it's just like, you know, meds, 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 meds. And, and that's kind of how I get pushed to find you. And I guess other people who are, you know, talking more broadly about, you know, some of the limitations in psychiatry, because I'm just like, there is no way this is, this is right. So I kind of go off on this tangent where I'm not looking at just styles, uh, psychopharmacology and other kind of recommended textbooks. I'm reading all of these things. And then I'm coming back to training with all of these, these different ideas, you know, whether it's, oh, hey, actually, you know, you know, this person who you think has bipolar disorder and you just put them on Depakote, lithium and an antipsychotic, like if you actually took the time to do the history, you know, they just had an acute manic reaction right after, you know, starting Paxil or, or, mm. or stopping it and it's just missed, you know, because mm -hmm. yeah. uh, of the way it was being practiced. So so I had all of these ideas where, you know, they were just not 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 common, not not what people were looking for in their histories it was just this production line of let's let's just crank through these patients okay they've got this symptoms this this mixed episode on you know this this adverse reaction to an antidepressant we'll just call it a mixed episode of bipolar and this was this was super popular at the time mm, oh, right, yeah. right when we were talking about mixed bipolar episodes was when i was going through and everything was a mixed bipolar you know mixed bipolar mm -hmm. episode and yeah so um, eventually, uh, you know, I, I had to kind of learn to just sort of shut up and, you know, with a lot of help from my wife, who was also saying, just, just don't bring it up. Um, and, um, you know, get through and, you know, I definitely thought about quitting a little bit, but, you know, it wasn't all bad. I ended up having some professors who, you know, let me write some textbook chapters. I think I've sent it to you on antidepressants and really kind of fostered that. And that kind of sent me off to the FDA eventually, but, uh, you know, no, I definitely wasn't that popular. And then it's interesting how, you know, once, once you start questioning, you know, the, the clinical decisions of people, um, you know, it's not like this, you know, and I'm not this naive anymore. This like, okay, let's sit down and let's like try and like figure out what's best for the patient. You know, people, mm. people kind of, they, they kind of come at you and then mm. they'll come at you with like personal reasons as well. You know, it's not just, you know, talking about the, um, you know, the ideas or the science behind things, you know, the, you know, they can come at you with pretty personal attacks as well. And mm -hmm. uh, you're very powerless as, as, a, as a resident. So it was kind of this just very eye-opening experience, uh, you know, like, welcome to the world, Yosef. You know, this is how things work. And then it was just repeated again, you know, mm -hmm. at different places, you know, whether it's the FDA or pharmaceutical companies. I was a lot wiser then to kind of just say, I'm going to pick my battles pretty carefully. But mm -hmm. um Anyway, you know, the YouTube channel is kind of a, uh, it's been this, uh, you know, thing that I've thought about doing for a while and I, I think I just don't really care anymore. So I'm just kind of putting it, <laughs> just, just coming out and talking about it now. So mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah, anyway, that's my download. I don't know if you have any more questions on that, but that, that was my. No, experience. no, no. But yeah. yeah, my sense from what I see happening uh, yeah. from you know, the kind of position I'm in and what I'm hearing from you now and others who've been through, who've been trained in the system recently is just that, that increasingly there's very few people like you who have gone through this process of questioning. Most people pretty early on have been told, well, you know, the guidelines are what you do. And as you train these days, trying to pass um, um, exams, 
is all about telling people what the guidelines say. You just learn the guidelines. You don't, you don't, uh, you don't talk from your clinical experience, which is, well, you know, these drugs don't always work. You know, that's not the kind of thing you say. So it, it's a very strange atmosphere to be training in. It's, um, it's, it's interesting. And I, I, you know, I was talking to a family medicine physician of mine, uh, a friend of mine recently, and I was probing him, um, uh, you know, about whether he ever learned to read drug labels, you know, mm-hmm. because, you know, these mm. family medicine doctors, I mean, they're not just dealing with psychiatric meds, no, no, sure. cancer mm-hmm. drugs, mm-hmm. autoimmune medications, yeah. you know, hypertensives, and they just have, you know, and, you know, dermatologic drugs, and they all have these varied effects. I mean, the, mm-hmm. you know, especially mm-hmm. psychiatric effects. And, mm-hmm. um, and he did not know where to find a drug label. And yeah. I know that's kind of like shocking because you'd think, you know, family medicine physician who has huge exposure to all these drugs mm-hmm. and it really has to be diagnostically sharp to make sure that, you know, he's not misunderstanding an adverse reaction for, you mm-hmm. know, um, a primary condition and just lumping on some some new drugs. He didn't know how to do it. And then I thought back on my training and mm-hmm. no one ever taught me how to read drug labels mm-hmm. either. That mm-hmm. was just not part of it. You know, this mm-hmm. is the, you know, section in the label for the adverse reactions in the clinical trial this is the post-marketing stuff that's emerged um you know these are the descriptions these are the things you really need to think about i mean it's just completely left out and i imagine that's really common um i well, i mean my wife as well she went to mount sinai for two years before she transferred to baylor in houston and and she didn't learn how to do it either um mm-hmm. I mean, I only learned it at the FDA because I was writing the drug labels at the time. And then, um, and, and, and now it's like the, an invaluable resource. I mean, the stuff in the labels, sometimes it's pretty good. You know, it's not perfect mm-hmm. all the time, but mm-hmm. you, you know a lot more if you look there. And I know you've been involved in education for a really long time. I mean, wh- mm-hmm. what did you see when you were over in Canada and at, uh, in, in Wales? Yeah, well, I mean, I would go beyond that. I mean, it isn't just that people don't learn to read drug labels. And, you know, learning how to read a, drug label involves a lot more than people might think you know it's a a small print that most people look at it's much too small if you're older you know you can't read it without glasses and things like that so you don't read it okay but it isn't just that as it's written it's very cleverly written you've got bits under other reports which for most people they figure well this means this wonderfully honest company has had reports from flat earthers and the church of scientology and people who believe we didn't get to the moon about something happening on their drug and you know even though they're crazy reports they've included them in the label which just shows how good and transparent they are what people don't realize is the other reports section means that the company has chased this report has interviewed the patient possibly interviewed uh, looked at the medical record and can find no other way to explain it except their drug has caused the problem and it's only then that they put it in the other reports bit you know these are not reports from the church of scientology these are bits where it says zoloft caused you to become psychotic to hallucinate and things like that and the company has tried their best to say the drug our drug didn't cause it and i figured well okay it'd be wiser to put in the label because it looks like it can cause it but most doctors don't know that no patients know it but isn't just that you know i don't i i haven't ever found a doctor who's had any training in how to work out does a drug cause an adverse event in the patient right in front of them i mean they're not trained to work i mean some of them intuitive from cause and effect know if you give the drug mm-hmm. and there's a problem and it clears up when you take the drug away this looks pretty causal you know that's common sense almost but 
there's no training about it, you know, so, and nobody gets trained in the fact that, are told in the fact that the medical literature is all ghostwritten these days, at least company trials are all ghostwritten. I mean, there's basic things for for practicing medicine. And yeah. it comes out in clinical practice. And this comes back to what you're saying. You've got a patient, I mean, something with looking at uh, the sexual problems that can happen with SSRIs and you go off the drug and you're still unable to make love. So this is a condition we call post-SSRI sexual dysfunction these days, PSSD. And I've had a bunch of patients, I mean, you know, it just comes back to the average effect thing. This is not an average effect. This is more unusual. We don't know how many people have it. It's it's thousands of people, but that's still quite rare in terms of the average doctor. You know, they may see one or two cases only ever. But you know, the patient comes in and says, I've been off the stroke for ages and I now can't make love and I haven't been able to make love for a year or two. And the doctor, and I've got, at this stage, I've got a few people who have reported back. The doctor told me I had a somatic delusion and I needed an antipsychotic. You know, the person who's crazy, I mean, I mean, he or she isn't crazy, but in a sense, the person who's crazy here is the doctor. We've produced a psychotic situation where doctors are so wedded to the guidelines and the, the evidence base that they can't see reality right in front of them. You know, it's uh, mm -hmm. very strange. Yeah, I mean, that's. I mean, people, you know, I've heard a lot of talk about like medical gaslighting. And I mean, that, that, that's yes. how it happens. Yes. You know, yes, I mean, it's, exactly. yep. you know, it's, it's kind of word from this, you know, abusive relationships and things like that. And it, and it's kind of evolved into that where, um, you know, someone's like, you know, they're, they're coming in, they're, they're scared out of their mind, you know, they're, they're, they're worried about all these things. And you tell them that they're, that they're psychotic. It doesn't cross your mind to go and kind of look into it more, you know, mm -hmm. PSSD is you know you know it's it, it, in in some way or form i mean it is now in the labels in canada and it's also you know in a stronger way kind of discussed in the eu labels as well mm -hmm. but the problem is people don't read the labels and people mm -hmm. aren't getting like the um you know i don't think they did a dear healthcare letter in the eu no. for psd no. that didn't happen no. so so, I mean, even though it's been recognized there, at least that this can happen, I mean, there's 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 been no kind of, uh, I guess, serious mi risk mitigation program. So, you know, risk mm -hmm. mitigation for, for drugs, you know, we usually think if something's bad enough, they'll say, you know, they'll send it out to every single doctor in the country in a, in a, in a nice letter and say, oh, by the way, you know, or they might mm -hmm. do more targeted, just psychiatrists and family mm -hmm. medicine doctors. We're going to do this and... Um, we may sponsor, uh, you know, a presentation at the national meeting for family medicine and psychiatry. There's all of these things that drug companies can do. And I mean, none of it gets done for that. And, and, and so you have this pretty serious risk, which is really life changing mm -hmm. for many people. It causes suicide and it just gets kind of snuck into the label just, and, and, and no one reads them. So, mm -hmm. and, and, and so even though it's in there, it's like the impact on, uh, on, on clinical care is just, yeah. Uh, no impact let me let me um mm. let me ask you one more question okay mm -hmm. uh we've been talking about guidelines <clears throat> and what we're talking about is guidelines for conditions like uh, depression and schizophrenia actually i should tell you quickly uh just just to 
deviate from the script slightly, and this may uh, kind of shock you and may shock people. Uh, listeners who have heard about the nice guidelines and things like that are, you know, are the major guidelines which people look up to. Uh, um, figure that these guys look at the evidence and are fairly independent. They come up with their own mind about what's going on. Well, my inside story, I can say absolutely for sure this is true, but I can say it's it's highly likely to be true, having been told by people right on the inside. In the UK, one of the first mental health guidelines produced was the guideline for treating people who've got schizophrenia. And this was, I forget the year, but it was shortly after Zyprexa came on the market in the UK. And uh, my understanding, I mean, what you need to know about this is <clears throat> that Lilly headquarters are in the United States, but they've also got a major research uh, operation in the UK, on, at the south coast in the UK. And this was actually the place where Zyprexa was discovered. Okay. And, uh, but anyway, the, um, my understanding is the people writing the guidelines for schizophrenia were told that the number one line of treatment has to be atypical antipsychotics and Zyprexa included, or we move our operation out of the UK. Wait, they told the NACE guideline? The NACE folks? guideline people that yeah. this is... And now, yeah. you, you know, there was, there was a case for saying the atypicals should be number yeah. one guideline because at the time, all the literature and all the propaganda said they were much better than the older drugs. So, you know, in a sense, this didn't need to be said. But, you know, pressure comes on the people writing the guidelines and it's not always terribly subtle. Mm -hmm. But let me take you back and ask you a yeah. question. Uh, which is, we've been talking about guidelines, and as I said, it was guidelines for conditions, which essentially means guidelines for drugs these days. But what would a guideline for people look like? Let me kick it off, and you can add to it. My hunch is that one of the things I would say is that you shouldn't be on more than three drugs. So, And this isn't just mental health drugs. This is three drugs really should be... You know, you should be very cautious going above three. Uh, that's you know, the first thing it should say. And the next thing maybe it should say is, you know, one of the key things you should do is believe the patient. I mean, in mental health, clearly we've got a bunch of patients you can't believe. But if you can't believe nine out of ten of them, then we have a real problem. Mm -hmm. Any thoughts? Um on what a guideline would look like for people. I mean, I, I, I mean, the, the two things that you said, I think, are, you know, are, are really important. I just, you know, when, it, like, let's say, you know, we, we were talking about, you know, say schizophrenia, you just mentioned before, you know, the, how, you know, how, how should you treat schizophrenia? The one thing that comes to mind is, you know, there's there's probably about, you know, 10,000 studies out there for using antipsychotics. But, you know, if you start to move to the fringe and you look at some of the things Robert Whitaker and Joanna Moncrief uh, are doing, you know, they're talking about how, um, uh, you know, that's, well, we'll start with Bob Whitaker, like mainly that, you know, these, these studies are pretty short term and, you know, there's, there's actually some pretty decent... Um, 
I guess, uh, observational trials where if you just keep people off the medication and just let them go through their psychosis in, you know, fairly safe settings, they actually do better in terms of work and relationships. You know, maybe they 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 still slip into psychosis eventually, but over over time, you know, they they do well in work. And I bet you, if you had a long enough clinical trial, you'd probably see that their health was substantially better because the drugs cause all of these things. So, so in terms of like generating these, the you know, when you think guidelines, you just think uh, for me, you just think drugs now, you know, and yeah. and there's yeah. all of these other interventions out there which really that you know they seem like lesser forms of evidence because they're you know observational studies where you've just followed people and there's a lot more interpretation going in going in there but it's um um yeah yeah i think it's just been kind of ca ca captured in a way where you you cannot you almost as a doctor you almost feel negligent if you don't put them on the drugs because what are you going to do you're going to go off this kind of you know, this observational study, you know, no, no control, or are you going to go off this randomized control trial? And I guess what everyone else is saying. So you're, you're stuck. Um, I don't know if those were the kinds of comments you were getting at. Maybe you could, uh, yeah. Yeah, no, I think, I think you, I mean, yeah. yeah, no, no, it's just, I mean, um, on risk I have, I have tried to create some guidelines for people and there's a few things there, but I didn't look them up before we had this chat, but you just, you just hinted um, at a point there, which is one that I don't think we've got on the list, which is where, I mean, if we give a drug for people, uh, whether it's schizophrenia, depression, diabetes, hypertension, things like that, to some extent, uh, I mean, while it, are, it can offer the person control over the problem they've got, it also risks uh, leaving them less in control i mean if you begin off by saying look we've got options one of one of them is the pills we can use our goal is to get you in control okay and one of our options is is pills and um, from a schizophrenia through uh a depression uh, to diabetes and things like that what we call the lifestyle options which sounds a bit wishy-washy uh it's you know diet and exercise you know yeah is yeah. the thing that gives you more control you know, mm -hmm. and this comes through when you read the diabetes labels, which, you know, they begin by saying diet and exercise and all these good things that people should do, lose weight, et cetera, et cetera. And then they say, well, if you're on insulin or pills, maybe you shouldn't be doing these things because there's a real risk you'll produce a hypoglycemic episode. Okay. Mm -hmm. uh, so once you begin the pills, to some extent, you give up some control. Now, that may be worth doing. But before you give up some control, you should give the person the chance to have the most control possible over the episode, if you see what I mean. And it's a bit the same for um, people who are depressed. Going back, uh, there's a very famous trial about comparing antidepressants with cognitive therapy with interpersonal therapy and placebo, which reports in the early 1980s. And in the short term, the antidepressant beats CBT and beats interpersonal therapy, which don't beat placebo, curiously enough. Okay, I mean, interpersonal does slightly better than CBT. But, you know, the CBT people and the IPT people and all uh, said, you know, yeah, the antidepressant beat us, but, you know, in the longer run, we did better. What they didn't take into account was actually the people who did best in the longer run were the people who were on placebo. Recovering naturally 
seems to give you more resilience than mm -hmm. anything else does. Now, that's not saying don't have CBT and it's not saying don't have pills. It's just a bigger picture. Sure, we've got these short-term trials who say these drugs work, but you're not told the full story, which is, well, you have a condition that's probably only going to last a few months. If you can hang on in there, you're going to be, without pills or anything else, you're going to be better off. You get the impression you've got this thing which may go on for the rest of your life. You need to take a drug which works to stop it right now. But the evidence that it works is only from, as you said, very short-term trials. Yeah, which, are, I mean, the conclusions are overblown. And again, I go back to my my training and, you know, antidepressants, they're safe and effective medications. You know, it's not, hey, they're safe and effective for eight weeks. You know, after that, you know, we've got a couple of trials that maybe go out to about a year, um, you know, within a small cohort of people. And then that's about it. And, oh, by the way, you know, you know, the, the, any anything belong that, you know, who knows, you know, you, you, you don't hear that um, because that evidence doesn't exist. And so you just go, okay, well, safe and effective, but, uh, you know, and I, I guess, you know, what, what I'm doing a lot of now, and I know, I certainly know you're doing this is, uh, you, you know, treating people who develop all these, you know, late onset side effects that are just debilitating from, from mm -hmm. the drugs. And um, I mean, that's got to be, you know, you'd think that 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 should, that would be something that everyone would know, want to know at the onset. Oh, by the way, you know, this might make you feel better for a little bit. You know, there's a rare chance, or you know, there's you know, there's a chance we can't estimate that you might develop, you know, PSSD, or you know, you may never be able to stop this drug, or yeah. you may try and stop it one time in the future, and it can be such a shock to your nervous system that you might be left with some neurological problems. Um, you know, there's there's kind of no. Mm -hmm kind of discussion of what I, I I would consider the big risk. And then we're not even talking about the fact like, oh, by the way, these, you know, these medications work by blunting your mood in a degree. And while they may be very effective in, you know, keeping you less stressed at work and maybe more functional there, you know, your wife might not like that too much. You know, you, you know, this little bit of empathy that's maybe keeping this relationship going, you know, it might have a negative effect on that, which you may not realize, you know, it's just, safe and effective is what you hear and mm -hmm. and and that is it um yeah. just on that line i mean yeah. when you look at the trials done by industry compared to the mm -hmm. trials done by medicine like uh, the trials done of drugs uh, to try and treat covid infections there's some really good trials there's some trials going on at the moment in people looking at drugs for possible benefits for multiple uh uh sclerosis okay which is an awful illness but these trials aren't like industry trials, which are aimed to get a drug on the market. They're, you know, they often have up to eight arms. They're, you know, they're really trying to look at, based on the idea that some drugs will suit some people and other drugs will suit others, et cetera, et cetera. And out of that, you get good information that informs us a little bit about what our options are, but doesn't come out as conclusive, if you see what I mean, in the sense of this is what you have to do. Industry trials, even if they're just marginally effective, you know, if there's only a teeny benefit, the drug comes out as it works. And as you say, it's safe and effective. We've got a situation which is very like Moses coming down from the top of the mountain with commandments. The industry trials have been done and the results are written on tablets of stone, which say to you and me, as a doctor, you have to prescribe and says to the patient, 
you must take. But that's not science. Science is not religion. It's not about commandments. It's about you do a trial and you find, well, actually things are messier even than we thought before we began the trial. We've got more questions now than we had before even, you know, and it's, it's about learning what you know, the possibilities are and I guess being humble about it yeah. all. I want to segue, you know, get uh, into into something that I that that kind of comes down from what you were talking about, which is uh, legal threats. You know, I, I suspect there's a lot of people out there who feel like if they don't give the drug, you know, you know that 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 they're going to be seen as negligent now. You know, that they are practicing against these guidelines, which are so tilted in favor of using drugs rather than other things. One because, like I mentioned, the vast amount of literature there. Um, talking about drugs and two, you know, there's just not big groups funding non non pharmaceutical type interventions for things. So, mm-hmm. I, I wonder if you could kind of talk me talk talk a little bit about that. I don't know if you've seen um, you've seen this or maybe you've you've had conversations about this, but I've certainly, I, you know, I feel it. I feel like people. Okay, you know, maybe this person is having like a mixed episode from this antidepressant could take them off this antidepressant but you know there's no real guidelines on how i should do that how long i should pull them off for you know and all the all these types of things and you know i don't even really know what this if this constellation of symptoms is that but you know if i call this a mixed episode you know lots of stuff about that in the dsm you know there's definitely treatment guidelines there feels safer let's just put let's just put them on lithium you know put them on lithium and an antipsychotic it kind of fits neat nicely into a guideline no one's going to question me, and uh, and I don't I don't know that that's what I see. I don't know if you have any comments about about this kind of practicing, trying defensive medicine, you know, practicing in a way where it's just like, well, I, I got it wrong this time, but hey, at least I was going by the book, you know. Yeah. No, I think you're right, and um, yeah. Let me take you back to the 1980s before we yeah. had the guidelines. Okay, uh, in the UK in particular, people were got very worked up about the risks of getting hooked to the benzodiazepine group of drugs. And then the SSRIs come out as the way out of that bind, you know, well, actually, doctor, you know, your patient isn't just anxious, they were depressed, and that's what's causing the anxiety. So treat the underlying problem. Okay, so uh, the companies come out with that line. But while they were having meetings, having people like me talk about issues like this, company people were there with a bunch of doctors in the audience and over the drinks afterwards or get a lunch or the snacks or whatever it was you know uh, just they were saying to doctors you know if you prescribe a benzodiazepine these days you could get sued you know your patient could actually decide i mean they've got good grounds to sue you now i i don't know if they if they actually say that kind of thing now but the guidelines say it for them mm-hmm uh, you know, so in a sense, they don't have to be nasty now. They can, you know, they've got an apparatus in place that does the job for them. And the other thing is, I mean, it isn't just you actually prescribing a drug. It's uh, it's increasingly in the literature, even the very best journals, I can talk about this one in particular, the British Medical Journal, you know, they are scared silly about publishing an article that mentions the adverse effects a drug may have. They won't do it. The legal department will say, don't do it. They're, uh, they're, you know, you risk being sued by the pharmaceutical industry. So, you know, there's very few lawsuits 
But the threat is huge. The feeling that this is a dangerous thing to do is huge. Sometimes the best people, uh, you know, to turn to would be, in a sense, someone like you, who's worked in the companies and who knows that they use threats, but they don't usually carry through with it. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. um, uh, the people that I've found that have been prepared to publish things that the BMJ won't publish have been people who are editors of journals who have previously worked in pharmaceutical companies. They know, hey, there's a lot of threat. There's a lot of bluster, but, you know, this looks like worth publishing, you know, so. Yeah, that's, um, I, so I guess, it, you know, the position of like places like the BMJ is like, oh, we'll just leave it to the regulators. You know, let's not wade into this. This is going to be a mess. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we, mm-hmm. we don't have the resources, um, you know, to, to get into some kind of, um, dispute with I don't know GSK or some other company about it. That's, but that I mean that's another one of another one of those forces there. You know why the medical literature is so skewed and why, you know things things go poorly. Um, and not something that was on my radar uh, until until you mentioned it just then. That medical journals, it's hard for them. You know, yeah. And and I guess the other thing is there's that economic side of it as well. It's, you know, that it's almost. Uh, it's better business for them to favor to publish kind of more favorable things because then I guess companies, companies buy them and distribute them to doctors and, and yeah. kind of drop them off. So there's that, that, that side of it as well, which is seems to be another, fo- you know, another thing tipping the scales. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm trying. Yeah. We've actually been talking I'm I'm sure there's very few people who would still be tuned into us if we've been so long. Maybe we should um, take a break and come back at this shortly. Yeah, I mean, there's loads uh, of things here to talk about. Absolutely. Well, yeah, I think that that that's a good idea. And my wife probably wants some help with the baby, so you know, that yeah. saved me from getting a talking to. So, all right. Well, David, thank you again for coming on. It's been a really excellent discussion, and uh, I'll I'll be in touch soon, and we can pick this up uh, where we left off. Great, Joe. Thanks. Take care. Thank you. Bye. Thank you for listening to today's episode. If you want to see the full video interview, we also post these to YouTube. Just go to Wit During Psychiatry on YouTube to find those. You'll also find several YouTube exclusive videos from Drs. Yosef and Marissa posted several times a week. Finally, if you need help with your drug taper, getting a second opinion, or managing your post-acute withdrawal, Come visit us at witduringpsychiatry.com. Our sole focus is on helping patients regain control of their lives and achieve optimal mental health on as little medications as possible.